to Psalm 139. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 969 of the church Bible. This is God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you and I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they are all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet they were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. O God, depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. If you have uh, in front of you that passage that we just read moments ago, Psalm 139, I uh, will endeavour to draw something from it to God's glory that will hopefully be helpful to all of us gathered here this morning. I've titled this uh, The Not So Artificially Intelligent, and uh, it's maybe not the best title in the world, but uh, It will have to do for this morning. Now I'm not sure what your thoughts or feelings are around artificial intelligence or AI as it's widely known. But regardless of how we personally feel about it, it would appear that it's here to stay in some capacity. Now there are those perhaps here this morning that love the idea of artificial intelligence, computer generated programs that do the doing for you, do the thinking for you, accomplishing things so that you and I don't have to do it. 
Now, whilst there will be some here that perhaps detest the very idea of AI, after all, it is called artificial. And when it comes to our food, we're encouraged to remove anything artificial from our diet. So maybe the same could be said for other aspects of our lives as well. In preparation from this, I did some brief research into AI. And very, very brief, I'll be honest. It was very limited. But what I found were some of the key aims and objectives that surround artificial intelligence. And this is according to Elements magazine. They've identified eight things that AI is hopefully going to achieve. One, solve problems. Two, complete multiple tasks. Three, shape the future of every company. Four, prepare for a boom in big data. Create synergy between humans and AI. Six, good at problem solving. I think it's ironic that that's in twice, so... Seven, helps with planning. And eight, performs more complex tasks. So on the surface, this sounds wonderful. But there are many concerns regarding the use and the advancements of AI, many of which are of an ethical nature, including the depreciation of human value. Now, we already live in a world that tries to diminish the role and value of human beings at any given opportunity. Babies are killed because they are inconvenient or they aren't perfect. The sick and the elderly are told that it's okay to end your life for what is it worth anyway. We are told that we are simply made up of atoms and molecules and therefore no value. So why should we mourn the loss of someone who's just a formation of matter and cells? Now I will be clear, I'm not going on some sort of rant. I'm not doing some anti-AI speech. I simply want to use this idea as a launch pad for helping us to think about the value of human life. And more so, how much God values human life. More than that, as we consider this passage this morning, I want us to appreciate that we are not talking about artificial intelligence or anything artificial for that matter. Rather, what we are to consider this morning is divine intelligence, the divine intelligence of our Lord and our maker. And how regardless of how much humankind seems set on hitting the self-destruct button, God's love for his children does not falter or waver in any way. And there is certainly nothing artificial about it. So as we looked at the psalm this morning, we want to look at it under three sections. Three sections, three headings. Firstly, verses 1 to 6. We look at the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. Secondly, Verses 7 to 16, the omnipresence of God. And thirdly and lastly, verses 17 to 24, the omnibenevolence of God. And I had to practice saying that, and I will say it wrong before the sermon's through. So the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, and the omnibenevolence of God. I will get it right. So firstly, verses 1 to 6, the omniscience of God. So 
Omni, O-M-N-I, is the Latin word for all. So where we see omni at the beginning of these words, we're talking about all, in completion, in totality. And when we talk about the omniscience of God, this is to show us that God is all-knowing. And we see that in verses 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So we have this omniscient knowledge that God has. Now there is no element of the universe that he does not have total knowledge of. That includes everything in the universe and that includes us. Now, to possess knowledge of someone or something to this degree, that's beyond comprehension for you and I. Now, many of us may claim to be an expert in our field. This may be because we studied extensively at uni on a particular topic, or we've conducted some robust research and written a dissertation on it, or we've practiced a particular skill for many years, or simply we have years of experience in a particular area. But research and studying and practicing and experience may well make us experts, but our knowledge is never complete. It is never considered to be full or total. There will always be gaps. There will always be something that we don't know And something yet for us to learn. So we are not omniscient ourselves. However, when it comes to God and his knowledge of his creation, there is nothing left for him to learn. His knowledge is total, it is complete, and there are no gaps. Now a good parent would consider themselves to have a substantial knowledge of their child. A good parent will know what their child likes and what they don't. A good parent will be able to preempt a child's response to a situation or circumstance. And a good parent will often know what their child is thinking or feeling without the child needing to say anything. Now, I am in awe of my wife Judith for many different reasons. But when it comes to the matter of knowing our children, she is certainly an expert in this field. I have observed on many occasions when our son, as you can see this morning, ventures off to his own will. He may go off to some corner of the house or goes into the garden and is more likely up to no good. But Judith will immediately know what he is up to and be able to go and immediately intervene. We know that when he says that he needs something to cool him down, what he's really saying is, I need an ice lolly. That relationship between a parent and a child can only get to that point through unconditional love, a genuine interest and desire in that person, and time spent with them. And that is the relationship that is depicted for us here in verses 1 to 6. This is a psalm of David. David, the King David, is the author of this piece. And David writes in such a way as to show that he knows that God knows absolutely everything there is to know about him. God knows fully the thoughts that he has in his head. 
the emotions that he feels in his heart and every deed that he has ever committed and every deed that he thought about committing as well. Now we read in verse 1 how David acknowledges that God has searched him. Meaning that God has examined him. God has looked thoroughly at David and at David's heart. But not just at his heart, at his mind, at his soul, at his every inch of his being. God has searched him. Therefore there is nothing about David's life that God does not know. And that is why it says, therefore you have known me. Now how does that make you feel? The idea that someone could know all there is to know about us. Every thought that we've ever had, every word that we've ever said, every action that we've ever done, that ought to invoke a level of fear in us. It does me. Now we often hear that phrase that knowledge is power and for someone to possess this level of knowledge about us, well that makes us incredibly vulnerable And very much at their mercy. But no other person, no other human being, no computer can ever know this level of detail about us. It is not possible for them to do so. And we praise God that that is the case. Can you imagine if it was possible for us to know absolutely everything there is to know about each other? None of us would probably speak to each other. No one would ever get married, presumably. No one would ever even get employed. The ugliest, ugliness, sorry, of our hearts, for that ugliness to be public knowledge and for the world to see it would be catastrophic. It is in God's goodness that we are not able to attain this level of knowledge about one another. Consider just for a moment, how would you react or how would you respond If you did know all there was to know about someone, someone that you care about, someone that you love, and you knew everything, would you still care about them? Would you still love them the same? Despite the fact that you know everything they have ever thought, every wicked deed that they've ever done, including those things done in secret, would you still maintain a relationship with them? Or would you seek to separate yourself from them? Naturally, I would assume we would seek to put some distance between us and them. But that is not what God does when it comes to his children. You see, despite God's wondrous knowledge of his children, he does not desire to be separated from us. Even though he has good reason to be. But instead, he seeks to unite with us. And we read in verse 5, You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Now that word hedged, meaning he surrounds, like a hedge does. He surrounds his people in order to protect them with his power. When we put a hedge around a a field or around a house, why do we do that? We do it to protect whatever lies within the boundary of that hedge. So that it's protected from any threat from the outside that would seek to do harm. And that is what God does for his children. 
He surrounds them with his care and protects them. Now that may beg the question then, why do God's children need protecting? What do they need protecting from then? Ultimately, death. Eternal damnation and eternal separation from God. This verse does not suggest that he protects his people in such a way that nothing bad ever happens. Nowhere in the scriptures are we ever told that we are protected from anything bad happening to us if we are one of God's children. But what we are told is that we are protected from the painful sting of death and spared an eternity in hell. So there is none other that could ever possess this knowledge of a person. And there is no other that could offer such level of protection from death than the God of heaven. The God whom we are here to worship this morning. And that is what David is declaring within these verses. So that is the omniscience of God. The all-knowing element of God. And then secondly we move through to verse 7 through to 16. And this is where we have the omnipresence of God. And that is to say that this shows us that God is completely present everywhere at all times. So every element of God, every essence of his being is everywhere at all times. He fills time and space completely with his entire being there isn't some of god in one place and another part of him somewhere else all of god is present everywhere at all times and this is another truth that is so difficult for us to comprehend in our limited capacity as human beings the fact that all of god is present at all times everywhere is something that we are never on earth going to get our heads around. However, rather than become confused and angry and frustrated at that, we are much better off at actually taking comfort from that knowledge. Although the fact that God is everywhere at all times, therefore able to know all things, that's a fearful thing. But it doesn't mean that we can't take comfort in it as well. We fear it because it means that nothing is hidden from him. And we just have to simply search our own hearts this morning and we know what he knows. As much as we may try to keep things secret, nothing is hidden from his sight. It means that no matter where we go or where we find ourselves, he is there. And that's the comforting element. No matter where we go or where we find ourselves, wherever our lives may lead us, God is always there. Last Sunday morning, we heard Psalm 23 preached. The Lord is my shepherd and he does lead us by still waters. He goes with us wherever we go into the valley. No matter where it is, he is there also leading, protecting and guiding. Now I'm sure if I asked you, you could come up with many examples from scripture when there are those that tried to flee from God only to find that this was in vain. 
It was not possible to hide from him. Adam and Eve, let's go back to the beginning. Struck by their own guilt and their own shame after committing the first sin, what did they seek to do? Cover themselves and hide from God's presence. Jonah, after receiving instructions from God to go and serve him in Tarshish, literally tried to run away, but yet found that he could not ever be away from God's presence. You see, he was protected and preserved in order that he would go and serve the Lord. Now, in this passage, David uses quite extreme locations to try and make his point. And he's just trying to emphasize the point that there is nowhere, nowhere that any of us could ever go that would mean that we could flee or hide from God's presence. There's a reason for that phrase that you can run, but you can't hide. It's not from scripture, but it's applicable. In verse 7, David presents the question, where can we go or where can I go that I can be hidden from God? Where can I flee to that you won't be there? And in verse 8, he answers this question. In heaven, you are there. Now, why does he use heaven as an example? This is unattainable. Heaven is somewhere that by human effort and human hand, we cannot attain. We cannot reach there on our own. He's being extreme to make the point. Then he follows up by saying, in hell, if we make our beds there, there he is also. There is nowhere that we can go that God will not be there. This is to say that even in death, There is no running from God. In fact, what it actually means is that, especially in death, there is no running from God. And this causes us to think then, are we fleeing from God? Are you fleeing from God? Are you trying to hide from him? Spiritually speaking, are we trying to distance ourselves from him? Are we trying to pretend that he doesn't exist? Or attempting to keep things hidden or secret from him as if we could? Friends, these verses make it perfectly clear that we are only fooling ourselves if we think that we can avoid God and ultimately that we can avoid death. Are you running from him this morning? If you are, stop running. Are you hiding from him this morning? Trying to keep your sins secret from him? If you are, stop hiding. Turn to him. He is ready and waiting and wanting his children to return to him. Just as the father in the parable of the prodigal son, God waits patiently For his children to return home to dwell with him. This passage continues to remind us that even where there is no light in the darkest of places, God remains there. Even the darkness cannot hide from him. If the darkness can't hide from him, then you and I stand no chance. We are given the picture of a baby being formed in the womb. Now you can't get much darker than that. 
No light can get through, but God can. There are no barriers as to where he can go. There is nowhere that is off limits to him. There is nowhere that is out of bounds. And here we have in the darkest of places, God working out something truly wonderful. In the womb, the miracle of a baby. That's the means by which you and I have come into existence. God was there, surrounding us in our mother's womb, placing us in the protection of our mother's womb. The safest place on earth any of us could ever be. Now early in Judith's pregnancy, Judith was quite sick. It wasn't just the normal pregnancy sickness. And so I came, became quite worried about her. She wasn't keeping anything down. And so I worried for her and I worried for the baby. And so we went to the out of hours to try and get some advice to see what was going on. And the most comforting thing that anyone said to us the entire time was the baby is in the safest place that it could be. And we knew that God was in control. But from day zero, for our day zero, God protects his children. Puts them in the safest place possible. Places us in somewhere where we are able to grow and develop and receive everything that we physically need. And the psalmist writes this phrase that we are fearfully And wonderfully made. I think those are quite impactful adjectives to him for him to have used. And he uses them because he recognizes, sorry, just how amazing God is to form us and make us in such an incredible way, making every single one of us unique. Now, as much as some progressive scientists want to try, They will never be able to truly replicate the wonder of what God does in the womb. No amount of artificial intelligence will ever be able to replicate what the God of the universe has done and what he continues to do because there is none like him. And we are reminded that even before that wonderful and intricate process of being knitted together in our mother's womb begins, God has already numbered our days and has a plan for every single one of us. And again, this knowledge that he's this master plan can invoke a level of fear in us. But like before, it should also bring a great deal of comfort. No matter what you're facing at the moment or have faced in the past, whether that's uncertainty about the future, worries around employment, finances, relationships, loneliness, illness, or even death, whatever anxieties trouble you, whatever it is, God has gone before us and mapped and planned everything out. We need not to worry, but rather lean and depend on him who has given us life, both physically and spiritually. So that is the omnipresence of God. So let's look then at the remaining verses. Verses 17 to 24. The omnibenevolence of God. 
This means that they show the writer shows to us the goodness of God. So omni being all, benevolence being good, the all goodness, the total and complete goodness of God is demonstrated to us in these verses. This is a holy and a righteous goodness. A far more superior goodness than you and I could comprehend. That God is all good. There isn't a part of him that isn't good. For there is no sin in him. We see here then the closeness and level of intimacy between the author and the subject. Or better put, between creator and creation. You see, David makes clear how close he actually is to God. Or more so, how close God is to him. David illustrates that God does not forget or cease to think of his children. He thinks of them often. Hence why he says, how great is the sum of them. He's referring to the thoughts of God for his children. They are great in number. They cannot be numbered. He thinks of his children so much that we could never measure God's compassion and thoughtfulness for his children. David writes this to emphasize the caring and compassionate and goodness of God. And that he would think of him, think of David in this way. And that is the same for you and I. And is that not a wonderful truth? That as a child of God, his thoughts for us outnumber the sand, as the scriptures tell us. To say that they cannot be numbered, we cannot measure God's thoughts for his children. This is a wonderful truth. Now we all know what it is like when we care for someone. And when we love someone, we think of them often, don't we? They consume our thoughts. And we hear it in the movies all the time how that person, they can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't do anything. They can't stop thinking about that person. It seems exaggerated, but that is God's mind. He is so consumed of his thoughts for his children. But this, on a human level, our thoughts for each other, that's a minuscule glimpse of God's attitude towards his children. And we see further evidence of God's goodness and David's close relationship with God when David begins to describe his enemies. When David makes mention of his enemies, these aren't simply people that want to hurt him. In fact, David considers those who oppose God not only to be enemies of God, but his enemy also. If you oppose God, you are his enemy and you are mine. Now that can only come from a close relationship with God and that understanding of him. David knows that those who take God's name in vain do not love him or care for him. And so that which offends God also offends David. I'm not sure if you have ever experienced loyalty quite like this. Do you know what it is like for someone to be offended on your behalf and join in this hatred towards them because they've oppressed you in some way. Now, I often joke about my family, my wider family, on the Stuart side, 
being like the mafia in the Market Hill area. And the reason that I make that joke is because there is this unwavering loyalty. There's always been this attitude in my family of, if you hurt one of us, you hurt all of us. And I remember when I was, what was I, 19, 18, 19, I had a Ford Focus. It was a little bit souped up, not big time. I wasn't really into cars that much. But I did have a spoiler along the back and had some nice rims on it. And one day I was at work at my grandparents' filling station. And while I was at work, someone came along and broke the spoiler off. It was a guy who also drove a Ford Focus and mine was bigger than his. So he broke it off. So I do, I do know who it was. But I'll admit that at the time, I didn't even notice that this had happened. I drove, came, finished work, drove home, and my grandfather called me. He said, Lee, is everything okay with your car? I was like, yeah, why? He's like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, what's wrong? He's like, do you have a spoiler? He's like, yeah, it's on the back. Are you sure you have a spoiler? And granted, I got out of the car and looked, and the spoiler was gone. And then when I started to talk to my family about what had happened, I remember my aunt. And she was so angry about it. I wasn't. I didn't really care. It was annoying, but that was it. But she was so angry and upset about it, a lot more than I was, but she was angry for me. She was offended because someone had done that thing against me. And her loyalty is to be commended. Anger perhaps misplaced. But if we take that idea, that sense of loyalty, and magnify that tenfold, we may begin to understand that relationship that David had with God. You see, we too are to be offended by what offends God. Sin offends God, and therefore sin ought to offend us as well. We are not to excuse sin or seek to try and justify it or become complacent in it. We are to be offended by it because it offends our holy and righteous God. Our loyalty is to him and not to fellow man. And that's why it's important that as believers, as Christians, that we seek wisdom in how we speak against these things that are laid out first in scripture. The things that we know that offend God, we are to seek wisdom in how we are to speak against them. We are to be hurt by the murdering of unborn babies. We are to be hurt by the sexual immoral living of those around us. We are to be hurt by the attack on biblical marriage from society. We are to be hurt when those around us take God's name in vain. We are not to become complacent in our attitude to sin, but we are to consider sin an enemy of God. And furthermore, then David, he turns the microscope back upon himself and he repeats the initial question. Search me. Try me. What is he doing? He is asking God to examine his heart in order that any sin that lives there would be revealed to him. In order that he could repent of it and cease sinning in that way. In order that God would lead him in the way everlasting. What that means is that God would lead him towards heaven. And that God would help him to live a godly and a righteous life. And that God would help him to do the right thing in his eyes. 
And therefore, as God's children, if we are professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, if we are saying that that's who we are, then we are to do the same as David has done here. We are to turn the microscope upon our own hearts. We are to ask God to help us to examine our hearts and therefore root out the problem of wickedness and evil in order that we too could repent and live a life pleasing to God. So that's the omnibenevolence of God. So just a few thoughts in closing. As we think about this portion of scripture, I implore you to apply this to your own life. Reflect the attitude that David has within this. For each of us, we are to be fearful and comforted by the omniscience of God. As God knows all things, he knows the problem of sin. And he knows that sin that exists within us. And because he knows that, because he knows the condition of our heart, that should cause us to fear him. But as much as he knows the problem of sin, he also knows how sin is to be dealt with. And that is to be punished. Out of a love for his children, so that we need not be separated from him for an eternity, he did what no one else could ever do. He sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to walk on earth in fully human form, to live a very holy and blameless life in order that he could bear the punishment for our sin. Christ went to the cross. He went willingly to Calvary, willingly to receive the punishment that was rightly ours in order that those who believe in him would be spared the punishment of eternal separation from God and spend eternity in hell. If you were to examine your heart right now, what would you find? More importantly, if God was to examine your heart right now, what would he find? Would he find a love of self? Would he find a hatred for all things holy and righteous? Or indeed, would he find that Christ reigns in your heart? And I pray that the latter would be the case. So when we think upon the omnipresence of God, again, that's again that feeling of fear because God is everywhere at all times in every conversation that we have, in every moment you spend on your own, on the internet, God is there. Nothing is done in secret. Nothing is hidden from him. But as much as that should invoke fear in us, it should bring us that great deal of comfort that we know that we're never alone. Now that's not to say it doesn't feel like that at times. There are times that it feels like God is far from us, especially when things seem like they're going wrong. The proverbial wheels have come off and you can't get them back on, no matter how hard you try. But be assured that God remains with you. And lastly, when we think about that omnibenevolence of God, the all goodness of God, well, that is a reason for rejoicing. To know that the Lord God loves and cares and thinks of us beyond all measure is wonderful. He is a good God, a just God, 
A God that provides and sustains his people at all times. There is no bad in him. There is no sin in him. For he is perfect and just. And he has demonstrated the great lengths of his goodness to us through the giving of his son. Therefore, as a child of God, we are to live as he has called us to live. We are to hate wickedness and to consider it a personal enemy as it is an enemy of God. And we are to rid our own lives of the wickedness that exists there. This can only be done through coming before the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging our sin before him, asking him to forgive us and believe in him. And this is not just something that we are to do once in our lives. Granted, when we repent and believe, we are saved. But we must strive for holiness. We must seek after righteousness. And to do that, we must continually be repenting of our sin and asking God to search our hearts and reveal our sin to us so that we may repent of it and eradicate the sin from our lives. Amen.